This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 27. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. My name is Brian Hood, and I am your host today. Uh, Today, we actually have a very good interview. Uh, I'm really excited for this. We haven't done a lot of interviews. We're trying to move towards interviews uh, in more of our episodes because they're a lot of fun to do. We get to meet some really cool people, and we get to introduce you to some people that you may not have heard of yet. And one of those people is a guy by the name of Matt Boudreaux. He runs a podcast called Working Class Audio. We've talked about him before in the past, but today, we get a really good look at his career in audio and how that pertains to you. A lot of you, your, your end game in your mind is, oh, one day I'll have a really nice commercial studio. One day I build out an awesome studio for the ground up. I'm going to put a lot of money into it. I'm have a lot of gear into it. Uh, and then life will be grand, right? A lot of people have that mindset. And I think when you listen to today's episode, you'll understand how really for most people, that dream is no longer uh, the, the case. And I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean that in a, this is the way the industry has now shifted and you have to either adapt with it or you run the risk of putting yourself in a lot of stress and heartache. And you're going to hear Matt's story. You're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about here because this is no joke. Matt's interview today, he gets very personal. I'm really glad that he did this interview because I had no idea that any of this happened to him as long as I've known him. And I think it's going to open up your eyes to a lot of dangers that you do not realize you're putting yourself into by this dream this, and I'm putting air quotes, you can't see me because I'm in a dark room right now, this quote unquote dream that a lot of you have of owning a large commercial facility. You see, Matt has had a very unique perspective that not many of us have had. He has gone from large commercial space to lean, kind of a smaller, we call it a co-op situation where he's sharing a space with others, then back to his own large commercial facility with a very, very high overhead. We're gonna talk about exactly how much that cost him per month. And then after, you know, some of the worst years of his life in that facility, downsizing to a spare bedroom in his house. And that's where he's been since 2000, I think 11 or 12. And talking to someone who has gone through that sort of journey gives us a unique perspective on seeing the business from all different angles, not just my specific angle of only have ever working out of my home studio, not just some big guy who's always been successful and always had, you know, who's still living off the money he's made in the seventies and eighties and nineties. No, we're talking about someone who has been in all of these situations and now has the ability to show us exactly what worked and what didn't from each of these areas. But before we get into the interview today, I want to mention something that you may not know about uh, because I've never promoted it and I really haven't done anything with it. And that is the Six Figure Home Studio YouTube channel. I'm starting that up now. Uh, I'm going to be putting out more consistent content on there. We already have our podcast episodes on there, which you don't need to know because you're already listening to our podcast, most likely on your mobile device. But there's other YouTube videos on there that you probably haven't seen yet. Uh, And I'll be continuing to add more weekly. So I'd love to get you over there. You can just go to, to youtube.com slash the six figure home studio that's spelled out S I X that's youtube.com slash the six figure home studio subscribe to that channel check out our videos Uh, and there's some stuff on there that I think will be very helpful especially if you're a fan of this podcast so go ahead and subscribe to that and without further delay here is our interview with Matt Boudreaux Matt you've had a super long super I'd say successful career you've been doing this for many many years but I'd like to kind of start this conversation out at a very specific point in your career because you know you can give us your entire life story, but I think starting at a very specific point is the most interesting and the most relevant to our audience of listeners who are people in home studios who are trying to make a living from this. 
Talk about the time when you were working at this, I don't know what the term would be, but kind of like a co-op situation. It was kind of like a live work studio with people sharing spaces. Can you give us a little background on that and kind of start your story out there? Sure. That co-op studio, and I think that's a great term for it, was located in Emeryville, California, which is a small town in the East Bay of the Bay Area. So it's, you know, pretty much located right next to Oakland, right next to Berkeley, across the Bay Bridge from San Francisco. That came about at a time when my wife and I were moving from San Francisco to Oakland. And I had been at a studio that I was renting space from or renting time from in San Francisco. And an old, old friend of mine who had been a, a tour manager for a band I was in got in touch and said, Hey man, I moved into this new place. And uh, this, this person I'm speaking of is uh, my friend, Josh Roberts. Josh said, I'm moving into this new place with uh, this woman, Lisa Richmond. Uh, it's a co-op type studio and we think it'd be great if you, you know, brought your toys to the table and joined us and we think we could have a great space for all of us to work out of. And at the time, the situation I was in was slowly kind of uh, the relationship at that other studio was kind of going downhill, unfortunately. So I, I jumped ship, joined my friend Josh and uh, my new friend Lisa, who uh, are longtime friends, great people, and had this great little spot. Since I was the new guy, I was paying Josh and Lisa a chunk of every hour that I billed. Was it three people, four people in there? How many people were in that building? And what was kind of the layout of it? And is this something that's common in California? I'm going to pepper you with tons of questions about this because this is an interesting kind of model that I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing more about. It was, I think, in the traditional sense, uh, when people talk about a live-work loft, that's exactly what it was. And there was two guys living there, one above the studio, one across the atrium from the studio itself. It was like a... a a two-story small building. It's probably about maybe like 1,200, 1,500 square feet max. And uh, the studio was properly built out, room within a room. The roommate situation made it a little weird in that you had somebody who was directly above the studio. And so every sound you made, regardless of the, the room within a room concept, kind of impacted that person. So there was a little bit of tiptoeing around that. There was a kitchen, there was a bathroom, and it was a very open, airy space when you were in the atrium and a single control room, a single live room with a connecting hallway, and then a, one additional room behind the studio's control room. So you had a small space to uh, which to work out of. And it was a great space in many respects because it was because of its limitations. It forced you to just kind of get down to doing the best you can in a small environment. And I did a lot of work out of there. It was a great space. Now the financial arrangement eventually changed because after a few months I was realizing, wow, I'm paying a lot of money to these guys because I was billing a lot. So I said, I'd like to change the arrangement. I want to change it so we're all three paying the same amount and we get, you know, a certain amount of days. I don't even remember what that those days were. And that worked out to be a better situation. It allowed me to save more money, uh, have more money to spend, et cetera. San Francisco is just, it's always been one of the most expensive places to live. Is this kind of co-working or live-work situation extremely common out there when it comes to the recording studio world? Or was this kind of like an anomaly when it comes to this like little co-working situation? I don't want to say it was an anomaly because I think that there was probably a couple more situations like that. It was not the more prevalent way of doing it because in San Francisco and Oakland, you had coast recorders, which 
kind of is tied to me from the past, which we'll get into, which that went through many owners and you've always had, well, not always, but for many years, you've had uh, John Vanderslice's tiny telephone in San Francisco and, and many other studios like that there. I mean, it depends on how far back you go, but there is a history of traditional old school recording studios in the Bay area. So what made you want to go to a co-op type situation like this? Was it the fact that it was maybe a little more financially appealing to you at the time when you first joined in? Or was there another reason besides that? I have to say a lot of that was driven by convenience, really. I mean, we happened to be moving to the East Bay and my friend, I trusted him and, you know, still trust him to this day. I was a good guy. So I, there was, that was a no brainer. And, um, to have a little more control over my situation compared to my previous situation was appealing. And just, I think the entrepreneurial kind of side of me, which I don't think I had really recognized it as much then as I do now was starting to show itself. And I think that's an important part of anyone's journey is when they finally have that little entrepreneur flame that it gets lit inside of them. Yeah. It was that kind of own your own business, control your own destiny kind of a thing. That's super cool. I, you know, I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, when they're trying to figure out how to do audio for a living in some capacity, it's really difficult to just look at the industry as a whole and say, oh, this is what I'll do. I'm going to rent this facility and then I'm going to get all this debt and buy all this gear and I'm just going to follow this normal path. And the people that are being successful are guys that are doing these sort of outside of the box strange setups, you know, like a co-op working space or a yeah, unconventional. Yeah. Unconventional. Yeah. Compared to a fantasy studios type model. And so how long were you at that co-op and then what ultimately made you leave and go on to your next uh, part of your career there? I think I was there maybe to just, maybe just touching into 2007. It allowed me to reinvest money. I had buy some gear. I was in the habit of taking out loans to buy Pro Tools rigs and then a few extra items like, you know, a mic preamp here, a microphone here, bundle that all together, pay that off. Then like the new Pro Tools would come out and take out another loan and do it all over again. And I was able to pay those bills very easily and financially it was working out. I wasn't getting rich, but I was definitely paying the bills and I was definitely bringing in some money. Walk us through I'm sure some people are hearing, you took out a loan. How? Well, I'll start that off with this. <laughs> and this is really going to make me sound old to some of your listeners, I think. I'm 48. So growing up at my household, exposure to computers did not really come until I was a senior in high school. And I took a uh, basic programming class. That was interesting. But from that point forward, computers did not really enter my world except for the occasional tour manager that would have like, you know, a bulky old school Apple laptop. Well, at some point uh, around 1994, I want to say 95, I was thinking, you know what? I want to get a computer. So I bought this power computing computer and it was expensive. It was like $3,000. And so I turned to my father and I said, would you co-sign a loan with me for this computer? And he did. I paid it back. And then that led to, hey, I want to get another computer and I want to get this thing called Pro Tools. Can we do another loan? And because, you know, I'd proven some responsibility with the first loan, he was like, okay, sure. Let me talk to, you know, 
this is like I'm in the Bay Area and he's back in southern New Mexico in my old hometown talking to his lady at the bank going, hey, my son wants to do this thing. And it was like, you know, small town bank, easy to do, not a lot of hoops to jump through. And I was able to get another loan co-signed by my dad and uh, paid that back. So that's how that worked, Chris. You left that co-op space in what, 2006, 2007? About that time, yeah. Yeah, and he moved into a larger commercial facility that was, I believe, a Bill Putnam design, right? Yeah, once again, another like, you know, you spend all that time in that small space and you're bouncing up against the walls, you know, wanting to grow. So in my eyes, I thought, based on an opportunity, once again, based on convenience, not always the smartest move to base your decisions on convenience. But my friend, Michael Romanowski, who's a mastering engineer um, in the Bay Area here, Michael came to me and he had been there with another very well-known Bay Area mastering engineer, Paul Stubblebine. Michael and Paul were controlling the front part of it. There was a smaller studio or two smaller studios and they ran a mastering business out of there. A guy named uh, Ben was in the back, uh, in the what is known as the big room there, and he was running a, a studio. I guess things got heated, Ben moved out, Michael called me and said, hey man, why don't you come move in and take over Coast? And I, you know, here I am in this small place in Emeryville, and I'm thinking, okay, this is my chance. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go big now. And so I moved over there, uh, in about June of 07, I opened up. Now, if anybody who has any remote <laughs> yeah. sense of the economy, June of 2007 was pretty much just on the point at which the peak where everybody was getting ready to jump off the cliff of economic turmoil. So you just, you took over the lease at that point. Yeah. There was a master leaseholder who had owned the building for many years and he subleased it to a Catholic charity that ran it. And so Michael and I both got on the lease and took over and started to run this place. I changed the name. I was like, we got to go for a different name here. This, you know, let's try broken radio, you know, which was kind of a, that's a long story, but that's what I named it. Yeah. And so you moved into this space and I remember uh, reading something about you or, or listening to a past episode on your podcast where you talked about, you know, putting a lot of money into it, going into debt with this building. You know, for better or for worse, when you're in that position and I was in 19, uh, or sorry, not 19, sorry, 2007, you know, here I am in this, this fresh environment thinking, you know, with grandiose thoughts that would never materialize. And here I came in and Paul Stubblebine and Michael both said they kind of, influenced me, I'll say, into tearing the control room up and reorienting the control room. Instead of facing north, it would face west. And I think acoustically, that was the smart thing to do. But economically, that was the stupidest thing I could have done. <laughs> That's kind of like the way the the traditional path would say to do things, though. It's like you put your time in, you paid your dues at this kind of smaller co-living situation and an opportunity seemed to present itself at what seemed to be a very good time in our economy, which in 2007, before the collapse happened, that was, you know, we were riding high uh, on this upper trend that seemed to never have an end in sight. And so when you move into this facility and you have all these amazing plans in your head of how this is going to play out, well, 
traditionally speaking, it makes sense. Okay, we're going to get a loan. We're going to renovate this control room, which seems to be the weak point in this building. And that'll get me set up for success for the rest of my career out of this building. Is that basically how it kind of played out in your head? Yeah. I I just thought I'm going to do this in a super badass way and people are just going to show up. Also at the time, the back of the building was facing out to a parking lot. And so the emergency exit from my live room would go out into this parking lot. So we could very easily get supplies in through the back door and into the, the control room, not worry about, you know, permits and just build it out. So let's just fast forward. You renovated the studio. Can you share how much you put into this renovation? Uh, I think I put about fifteen to $20,000 in. And from that point on, when you opened up shop, was it kind of that, if I build it, they'll come? Or was this, you know, after the recession had already hit, was it hard to kind of make ends meet at that time? Or what did it play out from this point on in the career side of things? Well, you know, there was a lot of interest and I had all of these industry friends kind of putting their two cents in and, and giving me advice. I couldn't afford to, you know, get a big board. So Josh, my former Emeryville partner, was very kind to let me take his small Trident board out of our Emeryville studio and bring it in. And, you know, it was essentially this Trident board, some mic preamps and a Pro Tools setup. And Paul Stubblebine, the mastering engineer, lent me his two-inch 24 track. And we were up and running. And people were coming. People were booking time. But the problem was, is that the overhead was just too much. What was your overhead at that time? Do you remember the the specific numbers of what it cost to just keep the doors open and bills paid at that time? Yeah, it was about $3,500 a month. And do you remember your overhead at the previous facility, the smaller one before you moved out? I do. It was about $500 a month. (laughs) So you could charge the same exact rates at both facilities and make the exact same amount of money. But at one space, you're making $0 profit and the other space you're making, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 profit per month uh, with the same amount of work. Yeah. Let me set the scene for you. So in Emeryville, I'm coasting. I'm spending money on gear. It's growing. Everything is flowing. It's a, not a finely tuned, but a a well-done small business. And with a little improvement in marketing and maybe a little smarter move with some of the money could really turn out to be profitable. Go to the other place, the bigger place, I'm barely, barely paying the bills, bringing in no money, really bringing a lot of tension to my house as a result. Were you married at this time? I was. When I opened the studio, um, let me see, 2000, yeah, 2008, my youngest was born. So this is all happening, the recession, the new studio that was barely scraping by, and you had your first child at all roughly at the same time. No, my second child. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Second child. I had my first child. We, or, or, yeah, we had our first child in 2006. I hate it when guys say I had. My <laughs> wife had. <laughs> yeah. My wife had our first child in 2006, our second child in 2008. So new studio, new kid. Oh shit. The money is not doing what I thought it was going to do. So was there any, any light at the end of the tunnel with that? Or was it just kind of one of those slow decays until you finally moved out of that space? Or how did that play out? It was a daily stress. Every gig, every inkling of a gig that would come in, I would be on it like, you know, white on rice. Yeah. Regardless of to red flags or anything, you just had to, you had to basically do it. You were forced to. Yeah. Didn't matter if the client was stone cold crazy or not. And uh, if it was a big client, like we had this Keith Urban iTunes original session come in. And let me tell you something. 
I had no experience bringing in an act on that level. So I did everything. I did everything myself in that when it came to the studio. I had some great people help me get the studio ready and prep it. Some folks that interned and, and really some worked out well, some didn't, but you know, others helped me get it there. But once it was up and running, I was running it and it, it was a struggle. It was like, okay, so the Keith Urban band's coming in. Okay, I'm going to need to get parking permits for all the parking meters out in front of the studio. Let's go do that. Oh, we got to get the food ready. We got to get, you know, this, fulfill the rider. We got to do all these things. And this ginormous crew of people showed up and took over the studio. And then it took Apple 45 days to pay for the time. Yeah. I've seen this play out in a number of ways. And I think they talk about this a lot on the, the book, The E-Myth Revisited, where you're so busy working in your business, doing all these little tasks that have to be done that you have no time to work on your business. And, you know, you're at this point in your career where your, your overhead's $3,500 a month and you're, you're working 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks just to break even and you're stressed out. You basically have no time to work on your business, which means, you know, maybe marketing, maybe positioning, maybe building a website, maybe, uh, doing outreach, maybe meeting people for lunch or looking for someone to hire as an assistant as if you could even afford it at the time. Cause I know that, you know, times are tough at that time, but you know, when you have no time to work on your business, it could be like you're in this vicious cycle that has no end in sight. So how did you actually end up getting out of this vicious cycle that it seemed like you had found yourself into? <laughs> Good question. And I want to give you a visual for your listeners. It was as if I jumped into the deep end of a pool and if I stopped treading water, I would drown, but I had to just keep treading water. And I was out of breath and I was like, what do I do? I have this obligation to Michael and the landlord. I signed this lease. So I don't know how I'm going to tackle that. I have this obligation to my family. My wife is on the verge of wanting to divorce me for good reason. And I'm just, I've dug a hole. You're like, bridges are going to be burned. It's a matter of which bridges am I going to burn is the conversation in your head. Well, the lease was coming up for renewal. I knew it was coming up. It was about a year out. And I thought, God, if I don't leave now, you know, what am I going to do? So I basically, I came to Michael and I just, I was pretty much in tears. I just said, dude, I cannot do this. I'm drowning. I'm dying here. My family is on the verge of falling apart. I can't let this happen. And Michael has been, he's like my brother in that I love him dearly. He's a fantastic guy. And like any brother, there's a lot, there's been some tension and little infighting over the years. And so I got to give him credit. He said, okay, let's figure this out. What can we do? So in the end, we got me off the lease. I had been bouncing checks on the landlord bouncing checks on the, on the kids daycare. I was in a shit position guys. And I want to stress that I was in this place where I dug my own hole and it was up to me to get myself out. So Michael was great. He just said, okay, let's come up with a plan. We got our friend Tom Richardson to come in and take over. I got off the lease. Michael became the master leaseholder and I pulled all my stuff out. And I went home with my tail between my legs and uh, Michael was able to continue on with our friend Tom taking over. 
And and the funny thing was, is Tom came in, tore up the control room again, (laughs) had it face back to the original position, but redid the space really nice because Tom had money. Tom had been running a, a pro audio business for many, many years that I actually had worked for. And Tom was just in a better position financially and business wise to go and do that. So I did it. I got home and wrapped it up. And so by the start of 2012, I was out, but it was, <laughs> it was a hell that I wouldn't want anybody else to have to deal with. But I got to say a lot of great stuff happened as a result. Just I up my game as an engineer. I up my game as a business person. I ultimately, I failed in many respects and I learned so much from that. It almost wrecked my marriage. Did not. I've saved that. Uh, we saved that. And, uh, I wouldn't change the past because I wouldn't have learned half the shit that I did had it not been for that experience, a very rough experience. Wow. Well, I think that's a really intense thing, I'm sure, for our listeners to listen to. And it's something that we talk about, you know, one of the big lies in our industry is simply, if you build it, they will come. (laughs) That your skill as an audio engineer and your passion is all that matters. And if you got those ducks in a row, everything else is just going to fall into place. And your story is such a cautionary tale with the debt and the expenses and the ongoing rent and this sort of, I love your illustration about treading water of, yeah, you can be amazing at this, but there's this whole other component that can wreck it, which is your monthly expenses. And I want to add to that, that, you know, I was super cocky about it in the beginning because I was like, oh, I'm taking over this Bill Putnam room, you know, and I, I had kind of a chip on my shoulder, I have to say, and I was pretty full of shit, I got to say as well. You know, we were going out, there was this, I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian, but there's this amazing vegetarian restaurant that was up the street from the studio. And, you know, we would go there, a few of us involved at the studio, uh, Mike Winger, who is now the, um, our, our current director of the recording Academy here in the Bay area. And, um, Mike and I and some of the assistants would go out and I'd buy everybody lunch. And, you know, I was spending like, you know, 25, 50, $75, you know, every other day, you know, eating out all the time. When in reality, I should have been making a brown bag lunch and putting my nose to the grindstone and going, okay, how am I going to make this work? And I, I just, I did everything wrong, everything possibly wrong that you could do. That was me. Well, I have a few insights I've seen just from hearing you talk about this and kind of touching on what Chris said just now, where if you build it, they will come. Uh, having that mindset is is a lie that a lot of people get told, but you had people coming in. It wasn't like you had no clients. The problem was the overhead is what killed you, which is if you build it and they come, you still die because <laughs> because the overhead, it limits you severely. It's like you have to make $3,500 a month just to break even. And that includes no money in the pocket for you or your family. When in reality, if you had the $500 a month overhead, well, $3,500 a month, you're still taking away 3000 So all that, with all that being said, you know, the big lesson is keeping overhead low, which I think you did because you moved into your home after this. Is that what you did is move back? In your mm-hmm. home? We'll talk about that in a second. But the big takeaway here is you failed or you said you failed. In my mind, I failed. And yeah, I have failed many, many times in my life in big and small ways. And I'm sure Chris has as well. I, I don't know. We haven't really spoken of too many of his failures, but maybe a couple on the podcast. Not really. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't know many people that are successful that have not failed in some major way in their lives. And I think what separates those who 
uh, in the entrepreneur world, at least those who are successful and those who are, are failures are not the failure itself. It's how you respond to that failure. And from what I've heard from you talk about so far and where I know you're at right now, I know your response to failure wasn't just to curl up in a ball and hope it all goes away or to never check your bank account because you know it's empty. Like, although that may have been the response at the time, you're too scared to check your own bank account. Uh, We've all been there. But your response was to learn from your mistakes and then make the changes needed uh, in order to succeed. Like you said, you had to dig yourself out of that situation. So kind of talk to us about that now. What were, you kind of talked about what you had to do to get yourself out. So what was your next move uh, in your career at that point to, to really start setting yourself up for the next chapter of your life? Well, after I got out, I realized that, okay, I'm just going to bring uh, a particular batch of gear home. I had a lot of loaner gear too. And I, I, I returned all the loaner gear, brought back home what I had and set up in one of the bedrooms in our house. We have a, um, a four-bedroom house. And I had set up, got going, and my wife came home one day and said, I got to work more out of the house, and I need an office. I'd like to take this room. Why don't you take the uh, kids' playroom? And our relationship at the time was not the greatest. There was still a lot of tension and a lot of animosity on her part from my stupid behavior. And I bitched about it. I was like, oh man, you know, I'm just now getting comfortable in here. And she said, well, I'd like this room. And I said, fine, I'll move into the kids' playroom. And I said, but you know, what about their playroom? And she said, did you grow up with a playroom? And I said, no. And she was like, well, there's your answer. (laughs) Our kids don't need a dedicated playroom. You know, they have a bedroom. They have the biggest bedroom in the house. So I, you know, grudgingly moved into the playroom. And what I didn't realize was, is that this playroom, which I'm in now, is uh, the walls were not parallel. Ooh, that's nice. And I walked in and I, you know, did this, you know, oh, I'm gonna play some music in here. Played some music. I was like, holy shit, this room actually sounds really good. <laughs> so I cleaned it out. And I, long story short, you know, put all my stuff in here and she took over the other room, made that her office. And that's where we're at today. In fact, this room is fantastic. That's awesome. So the gear, you know, eventually got shifted around and sold and changed. And I met with a new setup, an entirely new setup now, but. So ultimately though, that $3,500 a month overhead basically disappeared minus any debt, right? Oh, <laughs> yes, it did. That, that overhead disappeared and it allowed me to catch my breath. And it also forced me to think, you know, where did I make my mistakes? Okay, first mistake, I should have never rebuilt that control room. I should have just said, we're going to take the existing control room, drop this little trident board in. We're going to make it go. We're going to make a go at this in the current state until the money shows itself that will justify tearing up the control room. That was probably my first mistake. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine. So you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems, 
you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. That's the number six, figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. So I just, I, I realized, okay, in analyzing everything that went wrong, I thought, okay, I have to change all of that behavior. I cannot be charging shit on credit cards like that anymore. You cannot be buying gear. That was another thing I failed to mention. I ran up a, uh, almost an, another $15,000 at my friend Tom's pro audio shop, thinking full well, Here's the catch. And this is where your audience is going to go. Oh, I didn't tell my wife. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I just went in there and me and Tom sat down. I was like, yeah, man, let's get one of those and one of those and a couple of those and all this cabling. And yeah. When's it all coming in? I noticed, you know, when you're talking about talking to your dad back in the day about getting that your first computer uh, with that $3,000 loan that he co-signed on, that seems to be kind of the the household you were brought up in. And I've seen this in, you know, a lot of people is if they want something, there's two sorts of responses. There is the response of, well, I'll just go out and get a loan or a credit card. We'll put it on a credit card and then we'll pay that off after, you know, we'll have the thing while we pay it off. And then the second or the second kind of household, the kind of household I, I was actually brought up in, which I'm thankful for, uh, is the delayed gratification household. And that is we'll save up money and then we'll buy the thing. And it seems like, uh, I, I, I've heard you mention Dave Ramsey before, and it seems like you've made that transition in your household maybe, or at least temporarily while you were helping you know, get back on your feet financially is going from the mindset of, I'll just get the thing now, we'll get it on debt and we'll pay it off long-term, switching your mindset over to, and your, and your habits over to, well, I'm just going to save up for it and then buy it. Is that, and was Dave Ramsey a big part of that kind of switch? Yeah. And just a little bit of correction. I actually was brought up in a household, uh, with a with parents that were very financially conservative and uh, were very frugal, charging things and taking out loans was not the mo. So, me asking my dad to co-sign a loan was kind of a stretch, and there was a lot of pressure. You know, you got to pay this off, son, because if you don't, you know, this is going to hit me. And you know, I did not want to affect my dad that way because they raised me in a fantastic way. So, I went through a pattern of behavior with that studio that was completely counter to how I was brought up. Once I got out of that and I was back 
home with my gear, tail between my legs, analyzing this bad behavior, there was a lot of soul searching. And part of that soul searching was discovering Dave Ramsey. And Dave, I'm not a religious person, but Dave has kind of a religious element to him. And I just kind of, I cherry picked from Dave the things that worked for me. You know, the, the religion did not work for me that he mentioned. However, the message of financial responsibility resonated strongly. And I just, he, he talks about a thing called the snowball effect in terms of paying off debt. You know, some people will choose to, you know, when paying off a, a series of credit cards, they'll start with the high, most high interest credit card where Dave is like, you know, pay off the smallest one so you gain some momentum, then pay the next one, then the next one, then the next one. So that's what I started to do. I started to stop spending and start bringing in money and slowly start paying off credit cards and developing this whole mindset. And I was kind of going into my own head deeply going, okay, this is going to be a new way of working. It's going to be kind of like a working class audio way of working. And that's when the seeds started to take hold of, oh, maybe I need to do a blog to really kind of get my thoughts out. And so I started the working class audio thing as a blog and realized very quickly <laughs> I hated writing. Yeah, I've been in the same boat. I was like, this is going to suck. Wish I could do this as audio. And then I was like, I'll do it as a podcast. I had actually created a thing called the Broken Radio podcast in the Emeryville studio many years ago, a zillion years ago, as far as I'm concerned, as just to play around with this new thing called podcasting. And that was, you know, there was an article in a paper about me doing it, the new podcasting thing when iPods were the thing. And then I dumped it and was like, yeah, whatever, I'm done with that. So working class audio came out of the ashes of all of this as a way for me to kind of vent my thoughts on things about financial responsibility and studios and audio. And at the same time, ask other people how they deal with this. How do they survive? And that's where all of that began. Well, I think that what's interesting about that, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on, you know, with the buying gear thing, not just the Pro Tools rig, because the Pro Tools rig especially at that time, that was the seat, that was, everything was built around that. Sure. But beyond that, you've got, you know, your outboard prees, you've got your mics, you've got, you know, whatever kind of monitors and so on and so forth. Careful here, Chris, we're getting into gear slut world, just so you know. I promise I'm, I'm going somewhere good with this. So I think what's interesting about that is when you sit down in a pro audio shop and, you know, you're, I'll have one of those, I'll have one of those, I'll have a few of those, like you mentioned. One of the things that's, I think, important and that I think is hard for people that haven't had your experience that's, that's hard for them is to get out a Sweetwater catalog and to be able to spot these items that are th what I would call a threshold item in the catalog of, is someone going to think about hiring you and they're going to glance over and, and say, ooh, manly large diaphragm condenser mic, that put me beyond the threshold and I'm now going to hire you, I wouldn't if I hadn't seen that $10,000 mic. And I think that there's a, this conversation of debt and gear, et cetera. You have to have this conversation of threshold pieces. If you have a, a Pro Tools rig, especially in the you know 2000s, this is a threshold piece. Oh, oh we're going to hire him because he's got a Pro Tools rig. But there are all these other pieces of gear that are so challenging to look at and say, ooh, I really want that thing with transformers and tubes in it. And to not recognize, well, that's probably not a threshold piece of gear. No mm -hmm. one's going to walk in and say, eh, I don't really want to hire this guy. Oh, wait, he's got a 
blankety blankety blank. Right. Now I'll hire you. And now that piece of gear suddenly made you money as opposed to this sort of like, well, we hired him for the, it was the sum of the parts. It was everything he had. That's not why people, I mean, it is why people hire an audio engineer, but very rarely are any one of those pieces of gear absolutely essential to, to getting the gig. Yeah. I mean, really at the end of the day, when you're about to buy a piece of gear, cause you think it's going to get somebody to hire, you have to ask yourself, do people hire guys like Chris Lord Algae based on their gear? No. They hire him because they have a reputation of a certain level of work that gets a certain sound. And that's what you're paying for. You're paying for somebody's ears and their talent and their experience. And no, that is the one thing I harp on and I am constantly checking myself on is gear. Uh, I've mentored people or advise, advise people where, well, I'm thinking about doing this and buying all this. I'm like, hang on a sec. Really? You're going to go and spend that much money on this stuff because you think it's going to change your outcome? No. You already have the basics of what you need. You might need a key piece here or there to fill in the gap, but don't go all crazy. Don't go into debt, period. I think this is a good point to kind of talk about Graham Hill's TED Talk that I've heard you talk about. Yeah. Another inspiration. Tell us the impact this had on your life and then maybe your gear collection. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great talk where basically, you know, he talks about, you know, he's sitting on a box and he says, you see this box? You know what's in this box? Neither do I, but I've been carrying it around from, you know, apartment to apartment for the last 10 years. It's, I'll cut to the chase. We accumulate stuff. Uh, we constantly are buying knickknacks or things we think we need or things, well, I better hold on to that for, you know, some future event that may or may not happen. And that TED Talk really inspired me to kind of focus a little bit more on the minimalism type thing. And now there's a podcast, you know, The Minimalist Guys. And those guys and Graham Hill really started to get me to think, okay, I need to start getting rid of stuff. And so I literally, I just started selling stuff, generating income from that. And that was helping pay off some of those credit cards. And, um, this whole post San Francisco studio thing has been a big transformation, a very a long-term transformation, but it's been a big change of behaviors about money, about gear, about acquisition of things and focusing on what do I need to do the job and what can I, what can I not buy? And if you're going to buy something, I always figure, you know, buy something really good and hold on to that for years. Don't be buying crap and changing the crap every six months to a year and just continually putting out money and recognizing that the act of spending money on gear is almost like a drug for some people. Yeah, retail therapy. It is. It totally is. I definitely, I have some stuff here that I've acquired since selling off a lot of stuff and it's more geared towards what I'm doing now. So you mentioned uh, Working Class Audio, starting as a blog and now it's a podcast. Uh, we, we've kind of had, not really a series, but kind of a theme we've talked about uh, in our last interview with, with Emily uh, Dolan Davis. And now with you, I think is a good point to bring this up, uh, where you take two different passions and you combine them together into a niche or something that is a revenue stream. And I'd love to kind of talk about how uh, Working Class Audio has kind of evolved into something that has actually ended up being a, a pretty decent business for you if you're willing to talk about any of that kind of stuff. Sure. Basically, um, 
I was like, okay, I've got this podcast. It seems people are listening to it. Maybe I should try to monetize it in some way. And maybe I could do that with some banner ads. Who do I know that's really good at banner ads? I was like, oh, Jules from Gear Sluts, who I've known for years. So I reached out to Jules and said, hey, can we chat? I want to talk about banner ads. I'm doing this podcast. Here it is, blah, 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 blah. When you get some time, let's talk. You know, it was very casual. I get this very urgent, you know, email from Jules. You need to get on Skype right now. I want to talk to you. And I was like, whoa. It was like very, almost like going to the principal's office kind of sound. I was like, oh shit. Long story short, we talk and he's like, let me just cut to the chase with you. This podcast you're doing, I listen to a ton of podcasts and what you're doing is amazing and I want to be part of it and I want to sponsor you and I want to, you know, there's going to be no money that changes hands. Basically, we're going to promote you. You're going to promote us. What do you think? And I was like, gear sluts? Come on. I mean, how many people go to gear sluts? Tons. And I was like, I got nothing to lose. So I said, yes. And he goes, now, uh, the banner ad thing, you know, I can give you some tips and, and we could talk a little bit about that. But it started to get me thinking in a different way. I was like, oh, okay, maybe sponsorship. Hmm. Maybe that's a cool thing. And I got a call from a guy named Chevy Shevlin, who some people know, uh, who was working at the time for Pensado's place about episode five. And he just said, hey, man, I totally dig what you're doing. And, you know, there might be some sponsorship possibilities you might want to think about in the future. Jules was one thing. And then Chevy was a, another, another inspiration that caused me to go, I might have something here that is bigger than I think. And so I just thought, okay, if I'm going to have sponsors, I don't want to just take on everybody. This has to be genuine. It has to be companies that I like, that I can feel comfortable telling other people about without, you know, cringing, you know, it's not going to be like, you know, no offense to Squarespace, but I mean, like everybody's got a Squarespace ad on their, on their podcast. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Or Audible. Or Audible. I use Audible. But <laughs> anyways, I, uh, I reached out to, uh, first person I called was Gary Boss at Audio-Technica. So I called Gary and I explained the situation and he was like, absolutely. It's totally grassroots. We love it. We're on board. And then that just started a snowball, bringing up the snowball thing again. And I just, I, one by one, I started to reach out to companies that I liked, respected, and, uh, or, you know, had people at the company that I thought were genuine, cool people. And then I kind of got a stable of people, got a little bit of income coming in, and that started to be a source of some income. And then I was doing audio work that was bringing in income. And I needed to bring in more. So I took on this like cheese ball live karaoke gig. I was like, well, you know, shit, I played drums for a number of years. I still have a drum set. I might as well go out and play. So I started to play with some guys and bring in some money and do a once a week gig. And I had this kind of, you know, audio podcast, karaoke gig, and some other miscellaneous things bringing in some income. And it was allowing me to pay down this debt and save a little bit of money and kind of get back on my feet. I think for people listening, if you hit a point in your careers where you feel like you're stuck and your response is to just kind of cower away and run from those problems, it's going to be a very long road for you. 
And I feel like if you can kind of do what Matt's done here, and that's kind of face these problems head on and tackle them one by one and start building, I guess we're going to keep with the snowball theme here. It's all these little snowballs he's building up. If you're, if you have the skills to play drums, right. And that's bringing a little extra money to pay that debt down. Might as well do it on the weekends. If you have, you know, you've done podcasts in the past and you had fun with that and you kind of want to bring this uh, working class audio type thing to the, to the listeners, or you have something worth doing a podcast about, and that ends up bringing money in to start paying down debt. You know, that's, that takes a lot of work. It's not, people think it's easy to do podcasts, but it's a lot more work than you may think. So being able to tackle these issues one by one and start building the snowball, I think it's a testament to your, your work ethic and your ability to, uh, I'd say the, the term for another Ted talk, which may be in our show notes is that grit term G R I T the ability to stick things out when things get tough. That, uh, is, is a rare thing to see for some reason, but it's the thing that leads to the most success with people. Yeah. And let me kind of piggyback on that. We can edit this out if this becomes like offensive or anything, but anything that starts with that, I love. Yeah. Where, where are we going with that, Chris? Well, it's not, it's not as intense as it probably sounds, but I got to applaud you for keeping your marriage through all this. That was tough. Crazy rare in our industry. Crazy rare. I mean, my parents have, have been married for, oh, God, I don't know, 60, almost 70 years. They're very old, yes. My wife's parents have been married for over 50 years. And that was how I was brought up. So the thought of losing that, especially with children involved, that was devastating to me. Yeah. So we, you know, we did what any couple would do, some couples therapy, some you know, heart to heart talks. And, um, I did not want to lose this family and I was willing to not do anything. You know, some people say I'd do anything to save my marriage. I didn't want to compromise who, you know, I didn't want to go and get like a, a typical day job to satisfy my wife for that. I was like, I can do what I do but I can do it without the overhead and I could still be successful. Yeah. You know, I had a, a long road to walk with her to make good on things. Knock on wood, things are way different now. Things are far different financially. Things are far different relationship wise. It's, uh, we have a happy family that I'm, I, I, and like I say, I'm not a religious person, but I feel blessed to have the family that I do have. That is so cool, man. But that wouldn't have happened had I not changed a lot of those behaviors. And a lot of that I can attribute to being cocky, being um, inexperienced, and just being not very mature about a lot of my decision-making. Well, I had a really intense heart-to-heart with my dad years and years ago. It was when I told him I got engaged. And not to get like too personal on this, but my parents are not married. And when they divorced, I was 13. It was messy. It was very, very messy. And one of the things he told me that stuck with me and it's been really helpful in my marriage is he, in a number of words, communicated that, that he was still paying for his mistakes when him and my mom got divorced. And I think that's one of the things that's not really talked about in our society, that if, if you had stuck with it, with the high overhead thing, and your marriage had fallen apart, it would have sucked then. But what really sucks about it is you would still, every single day, have more consequences to that decision from years and years and years ago. And the flip side of that coin is you every single day have more and more benefit to finding a way to live first without breaking your spirit, you know, without completely 
compromising who you are, which would have damaged your marriage as well. Yeah. You know, if, if your wife was like, oh, well, he's just sort of a wimp now. He's broken, but we're still married. Right. Man, I just got to applaud you. Oh, I was still bullheaded. Let's, <laughs> you know, let me just be clear. I was not like, you know, I'll do anything. You know, I was still like, no, nope, I have, I have a vision, but I can do this better and smarter, which is more in line with, with working with our family. That's rad. I love that. Well, let me just sum that up, man. I just, you know, of all the cool stuff that you do, of all the amazing skills that you have, as successful as your podcast is, your story that you were able to go through what you went through and keep your family. And I don't mean this as disrespectful to anybody uh, that we know or anybody else that's listening, that's, you know, been through a divorce or has had those struggles. Our industry is rife with people who have not been able to pull through. And that's not necessarily like a character slam on them, but it's important for our younger listeners to listen and not just be thinking, how do I be successful? How do I run a business that works? But also what's the cost? Let me also follow that up. Here's what happened after I left. Tom moved in, set up a beautiful control room, but eventually I mentioned earlier in the story that there was a master leaseholder who had owned the building for years and he leased to a Catholic charity that guy died. And when that guy died, the dynamics change because now the family wants to stop leasing to the Catholic charity and they want to sell the building. Now that changes the lease dynamics. And long story short, Michael eventually moved out and so did Tom. Michael moved to uh, the East Bay and rented a space from Fantasy Studios. And, uh, that building, as far as I know, is now empty. Now, imagine knowing that information now. Had I been so stupid and so stubborn and said, nope, fuck it. I'm going to get a divorce. I'm staying in my studio. This is where I belong. Well, eventually that studio would have disappeared. And I really would have felt like a total asshole. But instead, fortunately, I came to my senses, got out, saved the marriage and retooled, re reconfigured. And now I'm here to tell you the story. Working class audio would not have happened had all that shit not gone down and things are just better as a result. That's awesome. So as dumb as I was about some of this stuff, I have been somewhat smart about some of these decisions, not all of them, but a few of them. Well, I think it's important to just bring this up for our listeners. We were talking about this before the episode started, this idea of, you know, when you're young and single and in audio, you think your priorities will never change. But then you meet a girl or you meet a guy or whatever. You fall in love. Things change. Priorities change. Then you have a kid. Yep. And holy shit. <laughs> Whoa, I just cussed on the podcast. I never do that. <laughs> holy, it's worth it though. Holy <laughs> shit do things change. Your priorities change so radically and it's important when you're building a business, I think, and your story is such a great example of that, to build your business in a way that allows your priorities to change in the future. And if you've got a $3,500 lease, there's not a whole lot of room for that. There's not. And one thing that changed along the way was I got a call one day from my friends at Universal Audio and they called and said, um, we think we have a job for you. And I was like, well, first of all, you guys are like down Santa Cruz and San Jose. So I don't know what you're thinking, but. For those who don't know, that's a pretty long drive away from where he lives. 
it's too long of a commute to do on a daily basis. So I said, okay, what do you got? They said, well, we want you to do QA work for us, quality assurance work for, you know, software. And I, and I laughed. I was like, are you joking? Why do you think that? I have no experience doing QA work. Are you guys pranking me? And they were like, no, 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 no. Hear us out. You have eons of audio experience. We can't teach you that. What we can teach you is how to QA the way we want you to QA. And I was like, okay, all that sounds lovely, but we're back to the commute aspect. I don't want to do that. And they were like, that's not a problem. You can do all of this from home. Oh, that's nice. Like, oh, you guys, you're killing me. This is awesome. And what I thought was going to be a six-week run turned into, I'm doing it now. It's We're closing in on a year and a half, two years. And so th then I was able to give up the karaoke gig and have the QA work, the audio work, and the podcast be the three income streams that kind of keep you know the operation moving forward. One of the things we haven't mentioned about Matt is how we know Matt. We've talked about, and there's been some conversation on the Facebook community, the Six Figure Home Studio community, about mastermind groups. That is how we know Matt. We know Matt through a mastermind group that we call Blamo, and it's awesome. We meet, been a little bit less intense lately, but you know there are periods where we're meeting weekly for months and talk about running a business. And primarily, we're you know our Blamo group is content creators who do audio. Which is funny because uh, Lidge uh, Shaw of Recording Studio Rockstars invited me to come before I had any kind of audience that I was reaching out to. It wasn't podcasting. I wasn't even sending out email newsletters or anything. But lo and behold, I am now. But yeah, I mean, like the community that we've had with you and just kind of hearing you talk about this stuff was really instrumental in us, I think, launching this podcast. We joke about you being the podcast dad. <laughs> you've shown us like what it looks like to do it and, and uh, how to do it as a responsible adult. Yeah. Well, it's strange now because the podcast has become this thing that I feel I have a responsibility to. I don't feel like I can be lazy about it. I don't feel I can neglect it. It would be devastating to not have a show every Monday. I know how you feel. Cause I feel the same way about this podcast where it's like, if we can help one person avoid a life of debt or avoid, you know, one bad choice or one choice that could lead them down a path of stress and financial peril, then I, I think we've done our job. And I feel like if we can kind of get this kind of message out there, people like you who have incredible stories about coming back from potentially bad situations and still flourishing after the fact, I think it's extremely important for people to hear. So I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story with us. Well, and I also, I want to share with you guys, just, I don't know if I've said this in the past, but you guys have inspired me on many levels in these mastermind calls. Just sometimes, you know, you bring something up and I'd be like, what the hell are they talking about? Oh, oh, the interesting, you know, just ways of doing things. You guys are younger. I think you look at the world and look at money and business in a smarter, better, faster, whatever you want to say way than I have. And I always tell my audience I'm a late bloomer and I feel like I'm really just now coming into my own economically and business-wise. And you guys really kick my ass. You guys inspire me through conversation, through the content you put out. And I got to confess, Brian, one of the reasons I wanted access to your new program is not only to, to potentially pitch it and be an affiliate, but also because it inspires me, you know? Because I want to check it out and, and get ideas and you're never too old to learn this shit, to learn from anybody. And I always have an issue with the old dogs 
who just don't think that they can learn from other people. And when I run into that and they have this, they put up a wall and I'm just like, I don't know, man. I don't know if you're going to, if you're going to survive with that attitude, you have to really look around you and realize that there's, you know, I could see it in my kids. I could see the way they're educated now. They are so much smarter than I was at that age. This is the power of the mastermind group as it is. We haven't really talked about it. We've mentioned it a couple of times, Chris. We've never really gone into detail. So maybe it's a good conversation worth having in an episode. But the power of the mastermind is this. It's, you know, we have the experience of Matt who has, you know, 150 plus episodes of his podcast under his belt or maybe 170. I don't know. What, what number are you at right now? Uh, this week I'm at 176. Yep. 176 episodes. We're on like 25 right now. So to have that sort of experience level at our fingertips of someone that can give us the right feedback and insight on what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, that kind of stuff's invaluable. And, and it goes both ways where, you know, we may have a different worldview or a different type of take on something from a business perspective or advertising or networking or whatever it happens to be that we can help share our younger point of view to Matt. And so it's like this a rising tide lifts all shifts or whatever they, whatever the saying is where we both help each other out in different areas because no one's going to know everything ever. <laughs> so to be able to get around people, I think it's an important part of business. And that's one of the things I do in, in the Profitable Producer course is after we do our accountability program, that's an eight week thing that we do. At the end of that, I have people split off into mastermind groups of about five to eight people. And because I know the power of those things long-term and I have some that we put people into groups uh, the first time back in September. And, you know, as of right now in May, they're still meeting up once a week. So I, I know how important these can be. So if you're not in a mastermind right now, I encourage you to find a group of people, five to eight, preferably 10 at the most that you can meet with weekly and share your experiences, your goals, your, what you're struggling with and help each other out through your different perspectives on life and business. Matt, where can people find out more about you if they want to dig into your work? Sure. Well, we've been talking a lot about my podcast. You can go to workingclassaudio.com and check that out. If you want to learn more about myself, you can go to mattboudreau.com. That's M-A-T-T-B-O-U-D-R-E-A-U.com. Yeah, that's about it. So that is it for our interview with Matt Boudreau. I know for a lot of you, that was a wake-up call hearing someone who, you know, hit maybe for lack of a better word, rock bottom, uh, and, and really struggled with not only making ends meet, but making their life at home work. And I don't even have a wife or kids. And there were parts of this interview that really made me reconsider how I'm running my business in some ways. So no matter what your situation is, there is something you can take away from this interview. And my biggest hope is that there's someone out there who is about to put themselves into a situation that Matt had put himself into, aka an opportunity, if you want to call it that, has presented itself. And you're about to jump on that. I hope that this interview will make you just at least pause and reconsider and think, you know, it's nice to have the prestige of a nice commercial facility. Maybe my friends are telling me that's the right move to make. Maybe that's what society is telling me, or at least the, the gear slut community is telling me that's what the right move to make is. But maybe this interview gives you a second look at it. Maybe you realize this is not the best move for me or my business or my family. Maybe there's a better way to spend my money, to spend my time, to put better thing to put my effort into. If this interview changes one person's life, I will count it as a success. So yeah, that's the whole goal of this podcast is just learn from other people's mistakes and that way you don't have to learn the hard way. So next week's episode is one that I'm actually really excited about. Uh, we're interviewing a guy by the name of Warren Hewitt. You may have heard of him. He runs a, a YouTube called Produce Like a Pro, a website called Produce Like a Pro. Uh, he has a wildly successful career in both 
audio and the YouTube world. I, he's one of the few people I've seen that has successfully balanced both worlds and has had successful careers on both sides and not just one or the other. So be sure to check out next week's episode at 6 a.m. Tuesday morning. That'll be going live. And again, don't forget about the Six Figure Home Studio YouTube channel. I just posted a new uh, video today that's kind of more in the line of what I will be doing. The video is called How I Earn More Than $300 an Hour From My Home Studio. That video is up and live. You can watch it now. Just go to youtube.com slash the Six Figure Home Studio. That's S-I-X, the Six Figure Home Studio. And you can watch that video right now. Subscribe and you'll get all the future videos that I post on YouTube. That is it for this episode. Happy hustling and see you next week. Whoa.